Welcome to This Means War, a podcast that looks at contemporary conflict and how wars are being fought around the world today and what this might mean for the future. I'm Peter Roberts, your host, ensconced in a subterranean warren on the south coast of the UK. With a background in wars and warfare, I wanted to dig a bit deeper into the current conflicts around the world and get a sense over how the protagonists were fighting. Now, you might pick some of this up from mainstream media, more still in specialist journals and online content, but most of this is usually limited by the word counts their authors are allowed or by the airtime editors will give journalists for any one slot. So here we plan on delving into what this all means for us now and how it might shape the future of warfare. Getting into this topic is not easy. There are challenging aspects to the commentary, analysis and argument that make context important to understand. And that's what I'm going to focus on in this first episode, the context of the questions we're looking at and whether it is as important as I think it is. There are some big questions that lie at the heart of this discussion. Why do wars start? How are they being fought? Who's winning at any one moment and who succeeds in the end and why? What's new in the fighting style? Why did the conflict end? How might the fighting that's gone on shape the future of warfare? Those questions have been posed continuously after just about every war. And yet, and this might be just me, they seem to be being asked more urgently after each one more recently. Well, after some of them, at least. And we also seem to be hearing more, usually from senior military figures and their political masters, about why some conflicts are shaping the future of fighting in different ways. Let me give you some examples. The NATO campaign in Libya in 2011 was lauded as a huge success by European leaders as a prime example of standoff warfare. Lessons about logistics, war stocks and the frailty of European militaries were rarely mentioned. What did come out was an overwhelming investment in cyber and surveillance or I-STAR systems for militaries, alongside a doctrine of training local forces. And yet, on the back of all of this, the long-term results from Libya have hardly been impressive. More recently, in Nagorno-Karabakh, the partial success of some drones and long-range artillery overshadowed some of the key analysis about the importance of urban warfare, mass special forces, and the limitations of precision weapons caused by adverse weather conditions. Likewise, as far back as the Battle of Grozny in the First Chechen War, tanks have been written off as useless on modern battlefields. Commentators, as well as very senior officers, have been quick to write off their potential utility, thin-slicing evidence from conflicts to back their analysis. The ongoing war in Ukraine and the discussion there about tanks is a continuum of this rather limited analysis. These examples, and there are hundreds more, become the basis for the evolving force designs of Western military forces. Yet much of this evidence is bias. Speakers tend to pick and choose highly selective examples to reinforce their own established positions and thinking. Given all of this, there is a concern in the analytical community that we are, once again, prone to designing forces for the last war and not preparing for the next one. So what should we be learning from conflicts and how might we interpret what's going on in a form of useful analysis for the future? I'm joined today by another scholar practitioner, a friend of mine and a colleague of mine, Ewan Lawson. Ewan's done more to challenge my thinking about war and warfare than most anyone else. So when I was asked to do this first episode on context, it was to him that I turned. Ewan, welcome to the show. 
Always good to be here, Peter. Now, the first question, and we don't have a set first question in this, but uh, I wanted to ask, of all the conflicts that we've seen and talked about in the last 30 years, why do you think Ukraine has created such an overwhelming response in the West? I think the first thing is, it goes back to your observation about context, is the context. And I think that has two key elements from my point of view, and the temporal and the spatial. The temporal in the sense that this has been simmering away for seven, eight years now, to the point that, you know, lots of very bright, very capable, very insightful people did not expect a full scale military invasion, whatever label Moscow wants to put on it, that would actually take place. And I think in part, that's because this had been bubbling away for so long, at a relatively low level, and had been framed in, and I say this with a a degree of fear, um, in the hybrid warfare framing, whatever that really means, and maybe come back to that, that we had, to a certain extent, I think at least, kind of parked the idea that there would be conventional, if I can call it that, conventional warfare. So I think that temporal thing has been important. And then I think spatially, it's close to home. It's much closer to home even than perhaps, say, Georgia is. And Ukrainian refugees have been coming to the UK as a consequence of this conflict. So it is very real. It is very close to home. So I think those are the two primary reasons. Now, whether those play into the conversation about the way in which the war is being fought, perhaps that's something we could take forward from there. Can I dig into those first? Because I'm really interested in this idea that it's got such coverage particularly in Europe, because it's closer to us. You know, lots of people talk about this. It's on the edge of Europe, or is it in Europe? It has been a buffer state previously, but it's the proximity, the physical proximity that has caused this to manifest itself with such an amount of media attention and indeed with the general public. And yet I was in Australia a couple of months ago, And the coverage, again, there was absolutely phenomenal. And you see that response in them shipping out armoured fighting vehicles this week going to uh, Ukraine. You see the Kiwis getting engaged in this conversation. You're there in Vietnam. If it's about proximity, then I would understand Europe being that engaged. But to get it in Australasia, is it the same in the Far East as well? I think it's subtly different. I mean, the Australian dimension is an interesting one. And I wonder how much that is due to... Australia's engagement with NATO in recent years. Here, I said in Vietnam, here it's a much more complicated question, in part because Vietnam gets 85% of its military equipment and advisors from Russia. And whatever people in Vietnam might feel, if there's a practical challenge in how they then address and even think about this, and and indeed, one of the conversations I've been having with Vietnamese scholars is perhaps one of the things they ought to be looking at now is how Russia has attempted to fight this war through the various phases and what that means for their own doctrine and their own way of thinking. But I'm not sure there's the appetite here for that yet. And you see that with other places. I mean, China was always going to be fairly ambivalent in its response, depending particularly on how successful Russia was. India, I think, again, is another interesting case. It gets a fair amount of military equipment from Russia. And therefore, these countries Let's be realistic. These countries are in difficult positions when it comes to being overtly critical or, you know, or indeed engaging overly too much. So what they're doing is, you know, it's the classic doctrine of hedging, which is Southeast Asia's standard way of dealing with China. But we're seeing that now expanded, I think, into the way it's not so much dealing with Russia or with the US. It's just dealing with this conflict. 
So it's almost as much about the context of where you are in your own situation as the context in which the war is being fought. And this seems to be what you're saying is that actually for wherever you are in your budgetary cycle, you might have to recapitalize and buy new tanks or an aircraft carrier or frigates, whatever it is. You tend to draw the lessons that make that fit. And likewise, whether it's because of your previous relationships with your defense supplier means that you need to you need to apply some sort of evening leveling balance to what you're seeing in the analysis that doesn't make you jump one way or the other. It, do you think that's true in that actually the truths about lessons from any conflict are shaped as much by your own position as the one in which they're being fought? Yeah, I mean, you alluded to that in your introduction when you talked about how different scholars, commentators, serving military professionals, civil servants across the globe we all come with a degree of pre-existing prejudice or you know, pre-existing ideas. And certainly in terms of national level responses, that's kind of inevitably going to shape and frame how these individual states are responding. What I think, as I say, I think is a more interesting dimension is the extent to which people will look both, not just at how Russia's operated and the, you know, the lessons that can be taken away from that and hopefully learnt, not just identified, but also what lessons can we take from how Kiev's operated? What did Ukraine do in the period between 2014 and 2022? There was lots of criticisms of the Ukrainians in 2014 and their military capability. They have had support, not that extensive, I would argue, but you know, they've had training support. The UK has been one of those providers. But it's how they have conceptualized, I think, they, how they would fight the battle that has potentially, and I've avoided commenting on any of this in public up to now, really, because I think we're still very early in this. However, I think you can see that some of the ways in which Ukraine has fought has been based on their takeaway of what a Russian attack would look like. And they have prepared for that and, to a certain point at least, have been successful in, in countering that. So I think, you know, in some ways, what this does take us back to, Peter, is, again, something you and I have talked about is, in this business about fighting the last war, it's more about fighting the last adversary as much as anything else, or taking lessons from conflicts where you're not directly involved, where you, you, know, you see patterns. And I think one of the things that will start to happen is even places like Vietnam, places like the Philippines, places in Southeast Asia will start to look at how this conflict has been fought and say, well, what are the takeaways for me from this? And a lot seems to be focused at the moment on the fighting capabilities, whether it's you know anti-tank weapons, whether it's tanks themselves, whether it's armored fighting vehicles, but less is being applied as usual to the slightly less dramatic kinetic capabilities we're talking about. And here particularly, I'm talking about war stocks and logistics. The Russian logistics has been a complete mess and stems back to even some really basic decisions about putting crane arms on their logistics vehicles and their own ability to do that. But there doesn't seem to be much focus on that that comes out at the senior level. It's more about how successful anti-tank weapons are. The tank has no place on the battlefield, long-range munitions, precision artillery, the same thing rolled out time and time again, as if to support some kind of narrative and modernization that the West wishes to see. Do you think that would change if we opened the aperture more away from Ukraine and looked at some of the other conflicts that are going on around the world? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, I think we've got to look at 
you can't just take that one conflict and use that as producing a set of golden rules which will now apply to all future conflicts because that's never been the case and never will be the case. It's about looking across as broad a swathe of conflict as you can at all levels of intensity and seeing what are the important things you take away. I think there is an understandable, because it's always been that way, focus on kit, on equipment, on shiny bits of kit. And to a certain extent, that's political. Politicians can't go and stand next to a cyber capability as it's being delivered, but they can next to a shiny new tank. But also, you know, I think what there hasn't been is thinking about what that means for longer term warfare. And I think this has been part of the thing that all wars are going to be short and sharp and it'll be over quickly. And I haven't got a crystal ball. I genuinely have no idea. But it feels to me at this point like we'll still be talking about Ukraine in 12 months' time as a simmering conflict. Now, whether it will be simmering at the level it was at the end of last year or whether it will be somewhere near the level it is now, is it's difficult to know. One of the critical issues with that will be the availability of war stocks, of logistics, of shells, of fuel, of all those sort of things. So I think the focus on equipment is understandable. But for me, we ought to be looking more about those broader lessons that can be learned. I was reading only today, somebody has written again about Nagorno-Karabakh and talks about the successful impact of small unmanned aerial systems, so not just the big Turkish drones, but also the use of quadcopters, essentially, for surveillance. And we're certainly seeing plenty of that in Ukraine. And the article makes the very sensible point that actually, if you start to contest in the electromagnetic environment, some of those capabilities will not last very long at all. And I think that's one of the interesting takeaways. We should be looking at things that haven't happened as much as things that have happened. So why has there not From what we are seeing, and again, I'm really conscious that we aren't seeing the complete picture, there doesn't seem to have been as much of a contest in the electromagnetic spectrum as we perhaps thought there might be. What are the reasons why that hasn't happened? And what are the implications if you are able in a way that is simple, dynamic, can cover sufficiently large areas? Would that start to question the validity of some of these, you know, the quadcopter loitering munition type effects you know i i think there's a whole area there which no one really yet is talking about just by way of an example it's interesting i was just reflecting on what you said then about the about this idea of a short sharp war i mean we've almost been it's been inculcated in us that war will always manifest itself as either a short sharp high intensity conflict and you go home afterwards with a definite victor, or it becomes a frozen conflict, which really you can just forget about because it's frozen and there'll be some sanctions and economics and politics and diplomacy going on in the background. And to have, and I agree with you, you know, I've not talked about this, but I agree with you completely that this to me feels like the start of what feels like a very long conflict that sits somewhere between the two in Ukraine. So it's not going to be, it it cannot because of the availability of kit and people, but it cannot go on at this level of intensity for in perpetuity. That's just not possible. And yet, neither do I think it's going to end up in a sort of nice demarcation of a ceasefire line with nothing happening. In fact, Ukraine's not been like that since 2014. Everyone talks about this sort of not a DMZ, but actually it was a very active line of control, assassinations, drones, artillery fire. On a daily basis, this stuff was going on. And I feel that that is very much the way that this will look as well in the future. 
but all the all the commentary that you see, particularly in mainstream papers, always looks to me as though people are expecting it to end, that they expect it somehow to come to a conclusion that in another 100 days, Ukraine will be victorious, or in another 100 days, Russia will have achieved set goals and the whole thing will be called off. And there's this idea that sits deep within our mindset that says it needs to be over at some point, that it needs to draw to a conclusion. Where do you think that stems from? Is it just something we've been taught? Because, you know, if I look back at conflicts over hundreds of years, you don't see natural conclusions like that very often. I mean, they're an aberration rather than a norm. Well, I think we sometimes are a little bit too embedded in the big wars of the 20th century, all of which, if you think about the First World War, Second World War, and arguably the Cold War as well, all of those conflicts effectively reached an end. Now, you might argue and I think IR scholars will be talking about this in years to come, is whether what we're seeing now is actually the continuation of the Cold War, and that the brief period between 1989 and arguably the mid-2000s, that was the aberration period, and actually there's much more continuity. I think that certainly remains unclear. And indeed, if we look at our own experience in the conflict in Afghanistan, the conflict in Iraq, and indeed, you you mentioned intervention in Libya earlier on. So yeah, the intervention was great, but where did that leave the country? Where did that leave conflict inside Libya? The answer is still going on today. So the intervention perhaps stopped genocide, which was what those interventions were supposed to do, But ultimately, conflicts need political solutions, not military solutions. And unless there's some degree of common ground, and I think this is one of the interesting things with Russia-Ukraine, unless the political context in one or both of those countries changes, it is difficult to see where that common ground comes from. Now, I wanted to just reach back a little bit into something that you said a couple of minutes ago, which was, and I have felt the same thing, interestingly, that we've not seen the complete picture and we don't get the full roundness, the full understanding of what's going on, particularly from Western reporting. I've done quite a lot of reading of the Indian press, who seem to have far more feeds from the Russian angle and gives you a sort of a more rounded approach to it. This seems to be very problematic for me, is that I almost feel as if in the West, all we're getting is propaganda. The Ukrainians have been brilliant at pushing out their messages, at demonstrating their side of realities. And yet for 60, 70 days, we saw at the start nothing from Donbass at all, where the frontline forces of Ukraine were facing off against Russians fighting in the way that Russians have trained to fight in terms of conventional arms. And that lack of an ability to see the full picture, to me, was a really worrying part of it really hindered our ability to gain understanding for what was really happening, the focus on Kiev and the failed coup attempt that happened there, the terrible push from the south that went up, the sort of the small sea battles over Snake Island, you know, all this stuff that was going on were almost distracting from what I wanted to know about, which was the big set-piece battle that was happening in Donbass, and yet we heard so little about it. Are we subject to almost a, a sort of propaganda, in a way, over these conflicts where we only see one side of it? Well, I mean, it's interesting as we sit here, you know, on the 40th anniversary of the Falklands War. And, you know, I'm sufficiently old. I can remember that pretty much all you got then was a government spokesman in London giving you an update. And yes, there were embedded journalists and they eventually started to be able to deliver reports. Very limited, pretty much under the control of the military. And yet we would never have thought of that at the time as propaganda. We would simply have said, well, that's just realistic in a time of war. So I don't think anything 
the Ukrainians are doing is terribly surprising. And you know, let's be honest, Russia's propaganda has been much more propaganda-like in many ways from what we know. When it comes down to thinking about the operational level of the conflict, perhaps, and the way that the war is being fought by both sides, it doesn't surprise me at all that after only a few months, we're still a little unsighted as to what actually is going on. It's difficult to get people on the ground who have the right level of knowledge to really understand what they're seeing. And that's why I say that with the greatest respect to journalists, some of whom are defence specialists, but many of whom are not, many of whom are generalists and are expected to be generalists because they've got to comment on the political situation, they've got to comment on the social situation, on refugees, what life is like now in Kiev, all that sort of stuff. So you know, you're not going to get the level of analysis and granularity, perhaps, that you and I might wish at this stage. The question for me from a NATO perspective and from a Western perspective is, what is our plan to go and harvest that data? Now, there will be NATO personnel back in country now, I suspect. I'm pretty sure that some of the nations will have individuals helping train and, and develop the capabilities of the Ukrainian armed forces, armed forces of Ukraine. But they're doing a job. They're not there for analysis. So I think we are reaching a point at which we ought to be putting people into Kiev now, not as a distraction from those who are trying to fight the battle on a day-to-day basis, but starting to just sit and listen and absorb the lessons and speak to people and build a picture. And that will, I hope, help then inform subsequent decisions. I know, you know there's podcast is not just a UK podcast, but we're already hearing the noises out of MOD about Indo-Pacific tilt effectively potentially being put to one side and a refocus you know, back on NATO. Well, there were plenty of us at the time who said that you can still do an Indo-Pacific tilt, but you shouldn't lose focus on what you need to be doing for NATO. And I think there are some really big questions that Patrick Sanders is going to have to deal with as CGS. And what does the British Army look like now? Because I think It has been massively distracted, again, by a set of arguably mislearned lessons, those around conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq, which has led to a focus on things like the Rangers and what sidearm they're going to have and what Gucci new cat badge, rather than saying, well, okay, what's our contribution to NATO? I accept that the Rangers would have had a role in being part of that training capability into a place like Ukraine. But we were doing that anyway, so I don't quite understand what really is changing there. In the meantime, artillery, armour, protective mobility for the infantry, all of that has atrophied. The obsession at one point with the strike brigades, which takes us right back to that first point, which is it's lovely to have this idea of highly mobile, medium weight capability. Fuel, ammunition, food, how is that all being got to this thing that's you know rocketing around the countryside at high speed? We must, 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 must think about that. And we must also think about manufacturing capability. And that doesn't mean to say it all has to be in UK. Far from it. Far, far from it. But we need to reach sensible arrangements with people so that when your war stocks start to get low, you've got somewhere to go to get new war stocks because you cannot assume that a conflict's going to be over in a particular period of time. It's almost like a version of the old 10-year rule, which was there wouldn't be a major conflict within 10 years, and therefore we had 10 years to build up, etc. Et There's almost a kind of no conflict will be more than, at one point it was, six months at medium scale, I think, and therefore we only need to have equipment for that. 
we need to start challenging, I think, some of those assumptions. There's no harm in having assumptions. And indeed, much of what we do must be built around assumptions. But we need to start thinking about those assumptions and say, well, what does the evidence tell us? And, and you know, it's not a black and white picture. Nagorno-Karabakh was over relatively quickly. Ukraine looks like it will be much longer. Other conflicts elsewhere will be at different lengths. But we need to think about the ones that we'll be involved in, potentially involved in, and what those are potentially going to look like. And limited stocks is not necessarily a way to go. Equally, I appreciate there is a cost to the country, and that then takes you right the way back, you know, going back to where we were at the beginning, which is what's the political outcome that we want to get out of this? There's a really important point you bring up there that links back to this, which is the idea that we need to be learning the lessons from Ukraine right now as a sort of longer conflict. And the temptation is that all those lessons are military. But in fact, they're just as much about the politics, about the sanctions regime, about the economics and about the industrial capacity as they are about shelters for the general public and medical health care and trauma surgeons and their ability to treat people within the gold now, the expectations around that. All these things are really critical, but go so much further than just the military. And it feels like there is just this sole focus on Ukraine as a place where we should be learning military lessons. And that's the extent of it. Actually, you know, it would be interesting to learn if when foreign leaders go to visit President Zelensky in Kiev and elsewhere, whether they discuss those wider lessons or they just focus on the military matters that surround it. Because to me, the reason why we call it a national security apparatus is that it covers all of the nation state and deals with security. It's not simply about the high intensity conflict. And I don't think we seem to have learned many of those questions, even when Loads of Western nations got into counterinsurgency doctrine and then counterterrorism became their raison d'etre in national security. And then we got into the sort of hybrid grey zone sub-threshold type activity that we were talking about for about the last five or six years. All of this related really to the military and how the military would react, perhaps with a little bit of the intelligence services sort of thrown in there and maybe a bit of policing. But it didn't relate into healthcare and economics and industrial capacity and the politics and decision making, the national security apparatus. And I think it feels like we missed a trick there. But I wonder if others have done any better. I know you've had some dealings with Georgia. I mean, they've established a couple of years ago a National Security Council to look at things in what we would recognise in terms of the language in the same way, but perhaps in a different way. I'll focus there on this whole business of hybrid. And as you know, I've banged on and written far too much about this already. But one of the things I fear is we are now so focused on conventional war fighting, we're forgetting all of that useful stuff, which is about a broader approach to national security. In fact, it's arguably about societal security. It's about societal resilience. Indeed, I noticed that our former chairman, Lord Haig, was writing in The Times only last week about we need to remember this importance, the significance of resilience as part of our national security strategy. And you only need to look at campaigns that are taking place in Hungary to demonize Ukrainian refugees and you know where those campaigns of disinformation and misinformation are coming from. All that does is shout to me that what we're going to do, I fear, in most Western countries, is we will now focus on building up the military again for conventional war fighting, and we'll forget all of that broader stuff. We'll forget all of that counter-propaganda. Will we forget cybersecurity? Probably not completely, but we will not give it the priority it deserves. 
which is a massive part of national security, because it'll all now be about ships, tanks and planes again. And the simple reality is it's not an either-or discussion. And actually, one of the mistakes that was made, in my view, around the conversation around hybrid, notwithstanding the fact it's a slippery term and has all sorts of conceptual challenges, was that the military, particularly in places like the UK, grabbed it and said, yeah, yeah, we can do all that. Yeah, yeah, we can do all that. In fact, most of the responses don't need the military at all. You know, giving first aid training to a broader cross-section of the population, could the military assist with that? Probably. But actually, there are other organisations, John's Ambulance or Red Cross, who could do that. Those sort of skills, and if you look at a place like Singapore, you mentioned Georgia, look at a place like Singapore, they've really embraced this whole total defence idea where you know it's about it's not about militarising society at all, but it's about making society realise it has a stake in this and a role to play. And that is, I think, a risk we're in now because certainly a lot of the conversation in Europe and to a certain extent in the States now is about what ships, tanks, planes, artillery pieces are needed. Fine. That, as I said, Patrick Sanders has got a major challenge now in effectively redesigning the British Army and equipping it. But that shouldn't be the only thing. We need to up our game on cybersecurity, particularly around critical national infrastructure. We need to continue to work out how we help society deal with disinformation. And you know, because the nature of conflict is such that it's not an either-or thing. And the Russians, as they are operating conventionally inside Ukraine, are also still conducting hybrid activities into Ukraine. One of the areas which I think will be interesting to look at in the coming months is the narrative and the conversation around cyber. There have been quite a few people who have said, there you go, you know, major conflict, no real cyber, blah. I don't think we yet really understand what the efforts were, how they were blocked, obstructed, etc. before we can go, it's not a thing. And... And I say, alongside that, disinformation, particularly into Ukraine's neighbours, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, etc., designed, you know, logically, it's fighting a battle in depth, but just doing it through the civilian population and the political arena and the economic arena, use of, of gas, than in the military, which is all hybrid was ever really about. It was always a sort of integrated approach. Amusingly, latest British Defence Review was called the Integrated Review. And, and yet, as you say, we seem to be lurching from integration to a sole focus on the military as if it's some sort of binary. And so I like the idea that you talk about these different forms of warfare. Warfare might take different forms. Indeed, you're just thinking about it there. You know, the Russians are currently conducting what we might describe as a conventional warfare in Ukraine, but equally are conducting political warfare and sanctions in the Baltic. They are conducting political warfare influence operations in the Balkans. And indeed, they're conducting other operations right across Africa. And yet, the only lessons we seem to be learning at the moment, the ones that we're focusing on, as you rightly said, are those that directly come from Ukraine in a military way. And most of those conflicts we talked about in this episode have all been European. I wonder if we looked wider, if we looked at Africa, if we looked to Asia, if we looked to the Caucasus, do you think we would draw different lessons about the forms of warfare being used? Because we have not experienced in Europe really a civil war of the scale that we've seen on Africa that has been going on for the last 30 years almost non-stop. And would they instruct us in different ways about national security apparatus? So I'll just give you slightly, because I mean, whilst the Balkans was clearly not as long as the civil wars in Africa, 
you know, that fairly major civil war in and of itself. And I think we took some lessons away from that. You only need to look at the work of someone like Mary Calder and New Wars Theory, for which you know she has on occasions been challenged. That it wasn't really new. We'd seen all of that stuff before. The focus on identity politics, the targeting of civilians, the role of an international financial system in conflict, all of those things have been seen before. But I think what she was absolutely right to do was to try and highlight to policymakers that conflict is is multidimensional. And and because it's multidimensional, it's the balance of these dimensions that means it will always take a different form. And I hesitate to mention the dead Prussian, but I think if you read Clausewitz properly, that's pretty much what he says. But there has been a tendency, I think, to just want to see things in a very simplistic way. And the risk for me is that what we're seeing in the reaction to Ukraine is this again. It's, it's like, right, OK, so it's tanks and anti-tank guided weapons. It's N-Laws. It's Javelin. It's Switchblade. It's all of these are great. And they may well be so. But I guarantee you that the first thing that's happening in Russia now is working out countermeasures. And I don't mean daft, handmade metal frames above the top of your tank, but proper countermeasures to these capabilities, because you know that's the nature of conflict. It's a dynamic thing. And it goes back to your point about conflict finishing. A specific conflict might finish, but the preparations for the next one continue to go on. And those should be built around so what did we learn from that last one? All right, so we've got a vulnerability here. So what we need to do is do something different. And that might not just be about a different piece of kit. It might just be about a different way of fighting. And then when you layer on top of that the diplomatic dimensions, the informational dimensions, the political dimensions, and it's how those all interact. So I think somebody in the States, might have, one of the think tanks in the States, wrote a Kremlin playbook. And the Kremlin playbook is good in the sense that it talks about all the different things that Russia does. And indeed, Henry Jackson Society published something similar, shorter, but similar. And if you accept that you're not necessarily going to see all of those things at the same time in the same place, then at different times, in different locations, you will see different manifestations of conflict. So it, you know that whole way of warfare to use a phrase you love very much, that whole way of warfare may well have some broad themes to it, but how it manifests itself will be absolutely contextual. And that has implications then for how we think about the lessons. So it's perhaps taking those lessons in the context and not literally, and then asking the question which is asked far too rarely, which is to say what question? So, you know, small micro drones and drones played a significant role in the Gorno Karabakh. So what? Well, can we stop that? And, you know, is there an electronic way or is there other technology ways of doing it? Or is it about how we change our way of operating? Is it about how we deploy? Should we be deploying in different ways? So it's really just about recognizing, which I know is is very much the topic of, of your conversation today, that context is everything. The danger, of course, with context is everything is it then becomes very difficult to learn any lessons because you go, oh, it was just that was just that. It only happened there. It's not going to happen anywhere else. That's where you need the intellectual effort, which is to look at things and look at patterns and try and identify what those broad themes are, what those broad range of activities are likely to look like in conflict, and then think about what you need to be doing to counter those or to balance 
you're a perfect way to finish. You, you drew that all together really nicely. Thanks so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the show. Do leave a rating and a review on any of your podcast streaming channels. These reviews help us to shape the content, our approach, and reach new audiences. Please also send us your suggestions about topics or conflicts you'd like to see us cover. We have a packed schedule over the coming months, but we'll certainly respond to your demands. The show is produced by Kieran Yates and Joe Bundo and is sponsored by Raytheon UK. It's a production for The Wavell Room, the home of intellectual curiosity and challenging thinking for British military professionals. Thanks for listening. Thank you.